Welcome to the Wheats on Your Mind podcast. I'm Aaron Harries. Wheats on Your Mind is brought to you by the Kansas Wheat Commission and Kansas Association of Wheat Growers. Our guest on this episode is Eric Atkinson, retired professor, radio specialist, and agriculture director for the K-State Radio Network. Eric produced Agriculture Today, an hour-long radio program, five days a week that was broadcast and live-streamed throughout most of Kansas and parts of Oklahoma, Colorado, and Nebraska. The program featured information from K-State agricultural researchers, specialists, and other experts examining issues facing Kansas, the nation, and the world. Through 39 years of Agriculture Today, Eric conveyed messages showcasing K-State research and extension expertise to an incalculable number of listeners across the region. Eric is a mentor and a friend. Full disclosure, I was an intern for Eric back in the mid-90s. Seems like an eternity ago, and I know he was younger then, and I also was younger at that point in time. So, welcome, Eric. Thank you, Aaron. That was a grandiose introduction. <laughs> well, notice I didn't, I, I hadn't asked the question yet of what life was like before radio, and, and I won't. But you were tempted to I do was so. tempted to ask that, but I won't ask that question. So, uh, glad to have you on this episode. I, I thought we would talk a little about about KKSU Radio, because there's just so much storied history there, uh, not only with with the station, but with radio at Kansas State University. And 2024 is going to be a special year. Why is that? 2024, and specifically December the 1st, 2024, will mark to the day the 100th anniversary of radio broadcasting from Kansas State University, because December the 1st of 1924 was the first day that KKSU, with its original call letters, KSAC, first went on the air. Um, The history, though, is so deep and so rich as far as Kansas State University's exploration into the use of radio. It was back into the 19-teens, and physicists and others here on campus tinkered with this newfangled technology called radio uh, in various ways. Uh, actually, the uh, the station KSAC was preceded by a station known as 9YV, and that was in 1912. The physics department installed a transmitter with a one-kilowatt transformer, and it began a daily broadcast of weather reports. They did this via Morse code, so listeners could... Uh, decipher the Morse code messages (laughs) that were being sent out. But the significance of that, in 1912 now, that was called the first regularly scheduled weather broadcast west of the Mississippi. So if you talk about pioneering in radio, that was was certainly a hallmark. But once again, uh, the wheels were turning then, and radio was starting to come on. And in 1924, Kansas State University was granted its license at 880 kilocycles on the AM dial, and that's when it went on the air. Mm Mm-hmm. It it does make sense, though, you know, the wireless telegraph that they did that in Morse code, uh, which is, is fascinating to get the weather report that day. We've we've come a little well, a little way since then. Yes. But so the station went through different iterations when it when it came on the air in 1924. You could hear it pretty widespread, correctly. I mean, there weren't many other games in town, so to speak, with exactly. radio at that point. Exactly. Well put, because it was uh, a signal that could be reached 
not maybe not quite coast to coast, but uh, as far east, if I recall, as Indianapolis, uh, as far west as close to the west coast, because there were no other competing signals with it at the time. And of course, radio was in its infancy, so there was a lot of sorting out to do as far as signals and territorial range and protecting this right and that right and so forth. But in the beginning, you could hear it uh, a long, long ways, and there was a a good amount of feedback from listeners, not only from the Midwest, Kansas, uh, the Central Plains, but but elsewhere. So it was an impressive reach, and I I kind of liken it, the impact of this uh, educational radio to what we've experienced in the late 19, uh, 1900s and 2000 with the internet mm-hmm. as far as a connection a way of communicating information at that time in the 1920s it was this radio was every bit as significant as uh, the internet was when it uh, came on board here you know two decades or so ago certainly maybe even more of an impact so Uh, was dedicated with a five-hour program on December 1st called The Voice of the Kansas Aggie. Now, if I remember correctly, I assume our mascot was the Aggie at that point in time? It changed somewhere in there. I don't recall specifically in the 19-teens or early 1920s, but in the teens, at least, it was the Kansas State Aggies. Yeah. And then in 26, the first football broadcast, I was I was impressed by that. I mean, I, I know football goes far back, but that they had a broadcast of, of football only two years in was, was pretty impressive to me. It, it really was. And it, of course, KSAC was very much involved, and I should broaden that to be uh, the extension service that supported KSAC was involved in sportscasting uh, right up until 1980, as a matter of fact. The oh, wow. K-State Sports Network was uh, a product of K-State extension uh, and and that continued to the, and that's a long story how that changed but it continued right up to that point so there was there's been a very uh, close knit uh, relationship between KSAC KKSU and uh, and the sports network okay in in t- 1928 it it shifted its frequency from 880KC to 580KC, and I think 580, most people are familiar with, that was the frequency um, that we're familiar with in, in modern day for KKSU. Um, what was the significance of that change, and, and how did 580 p- play a role in the rest of history? 580, because if people don't understand this, it's higher up as as the frequency goes. The smaller the number, the greater the range of the frequency, to keep it very basic. Uh, and you match that with the power used to transmit, and that's what determines your reach of your broadcast signal. So that was a, a major move in as far as, as reach was concerned. And it did manifest itself over the years to where KSAC was sharing that frequency. I believe in 1929, an agreement was reached with uh, Capper Communications out of Topeka, which was the owner at the time of WIBW, uh, and the arrangement was begun that there would be time sharing, which wasn't all that unusual back in that day. You would have some entities sharing a frequency and, and being on various times during the day. Uh, and KSAC and WIBW partnered in that respect uh, in November of 29 and created a timeshare agreement. And actually, the two then shared that agreement 
in various forms and fashions right up until 2002. So it went a long, long time. And But, yeah, it was an, an interesting arrangement over the many years. Yeah, I imagine the early days of radio, it wasn't 24 hours a day broadcasting like it was now, and, and content had to be created, so the time-sharing thing does make sense. So I'll take a step back. Uh, there's uh, there's landmarks here on campus, and if those of you familiar on campus, there are two big towers, and maybe you've never noticed what they were for, but... Those were broadcast towers. Those were the original broadcast towers. The studios were in Nichols, then Hall, Nichols Gymnasium. It's now called Nichols Hall. Right. Um, And the towers are just to the west of Nichols Hall. The significance of the two towers, the antenna itself was stretched between the two at the top. That was the antenna. Uh, And that's why there are two. They are still standing, of course. Uh, they haven't been used in, in decades and decades. The uh, transmitter and tower moved a couple of times over history away from that site. But because of their historical significance, they are now a registered historic place. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, they are uh, granted certain protections and so forth. And that's why, in part, they're still standing. There's actually a memorial to... Grover Cobb, who was, I believe, the one who began Kansas Association of Broadcasters, it is below one of the two towers to honor radio broadly and to recognize Kansas State University's contribution to the evolution of radio. So they're they're quite uh, quite the landmark that people probably, as you say, Aaron, don't recognize or don't understand. Well, yeah, why are those there? Thousands of people drive by that those towers every day, and I, I imagine most of them, the majority, don't know what they're for. So I'm, I'm glad to tie a little bit of history to that, and they are, certainly are significant. I did not know that about the antenna being linked between the top two towers. There, there's a great story to that, uh, and I don't know the exact details of it, but a gentleman by the name of Bernie Holbert was on the staff at KSAC uh, in engineering and uh, for most of that time as the chief engineer for 50 years. Mm. And he tells the story, uh, I uh, told it many years ago, of course, of how somebody during the dead of night had climbed up and hung a sign like Welcome to Ag Day or whatever, stringing along that antenna. Now, that's a whale of a climb, for one thing. Yes. But somebody did, and, of course, it messed up the broadcast if you have something hanging from the antenna. Uh, So he said that uh, the head of, I assume, Extension called somebody and got that down in a hurry the next morning. Yeah, yeah, without OSHA supervision, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) At that point in time. Yeah. Nichols Hall, so that, I mean, that was the home from the station, but then, uh, of course, there was a fire in Nichols Gymnasium in 1968, December, Friday the 13th of 1968. And that was a whale of a day. Of course, I wasn't there, but I, I my former colleagues at KSAC uh, would recall that uh, story and, and that episode vividly. Nichols Hall, which was Nichols Gymnasium at the time, uh, was the home for the studios. They were on the west end of, of Nichols Hall, the, the studios, and of course everything was archived there, old tapes, recordings, you know, invaluable stuff. And it went up in flames that night of 13th of December, 1968. That was a Friday. KSAC was on the air Monday through Friday at the time, in the afternoons, in its timeshare agreement with WIBW. 
but amazingly, and credit to folks like Jack Burke and Ralph Titus and Delbert Staub and others on the staff, amazingly, they were able to scramble over that weekend before the next Monday came to pull together a makeshift studio in nearby Calvin Hall, where Extension Television had its set up, and were able to continue to broadcast without interruption on that following Monday. They later moved in modular trailers to use as studios and what have you, but they really hustled to make that happen, obviously, because all of their equipment, uh, all of their records, all of their recordings went up in smoke that previous Friday. So doing that over the course of a weekend, uh, I would have liked to have seen that happen because... They really moved <laughs> to make that happen. Yeah. But, uh, that very next Monday, they were uh, they were back on the air. Where was the broadcast point at that point in time? The tower? What? Where were they broadcasting from? The at, signal at, at that time, I believe, and I, I, you might have somebody might have to correct me on this, but at that time, that was from the tower at Denison Avenue, okay, which was north of the beef unit and now the sheep unit. Um, up there. Uh, that tire has been removed some time back now, but that was for the bulk of many years the uh, focal point of the tower. They weren't using the two towers down at Nichols at that sure, time. Sure, sure. Let's step back at, from uh, KSAC and KKSU and talk about the history of agriculture broadcasting, the the, the, the content in agriculture, because that's that's what was so important and that's what we're, we're here to talk about is you know, ultimately became agriculture today, but what were the early iterations of that? From the very first, they led off with uh, the College of the Air, and uh, I believe incorporated in that was some farm broadcasting, but primarily they had a, a segment called the Farm Hour, and you'd have to dig back into the details of, of all of that, but the Farm Hour was a, a staple for years and years and years, and uh, it remained called the Farm Hour right up to, I believe, 1961. 61, yeah. yeah. At which time it was changed to agriculture today. Um, there were many people contributing to that program over the years, and you have to thumb through and, and pick up on some names here. But uh, uh, the Farm Hour uh, was presided over by a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Gapen, and then Miriam Dexter was involved in that at one point in the 30s, and in the late 40s, somebody by the name of Grant Solisbury was directing the Farm Hour, uh, so on it goes. Uh, eventually, uh, the uh, individual who is most associated with agriculture today was a gentleman by the name of Paul DeWeese. And some of our listeners here who've been around a while might actually remember Paul. He was associated with KSAC beginning in roughly 1948, but he was appointed the agriculture director in 1966. Uh, He was called the dean of ag broadcasters at that time, and justifiably so. And he was, of course, the host of agriculture today. And uh, a remarkable talent, to say the very least, for anybody who had the pleasure of hearing him broadcast. So a lot of folks were contributing to this, and of course there was support by other folks leading the program and the station and the charge, such as uh, Ken Thomas and, and most assuredly Jack Burke, uh, who was the general manager of KSAC for years and years and years. Uh, so a great number of folks contributing to it. But it was also... Almost always it was uh, the same concept, uh, as as I understand the history of it, and that is 
providing information to farmers and ranchers, others involved in agriculture from our agricultural expertise, whatever form or fashion that might be here at K-State. And it was usually in a conversational form. They had other ways of outreaching, too, with script services and and, uh, tapes that were mailed out to stations locally, and we can talk about that. Uh, But it's always been interview-based, and it's always been a conversation. Uh, There was a period where professors would just walk in in the early days and read a script of something. But by and large, for the latter 60, 70, whatever years it's been, it has been that kind of outreach where a host will interview specialists and experts and scientists in this field or that, agronomy, uh, animal science, agricultural engineering, so on. Uh, it has been a proven mech- method, uh, vehicle, and it uh, continues to this day. So that's how it's been approached, and uh, like I say, it, it's it's met with great success, it would seem, as far as a way to reach people. It certainly has, and, and uh, you onboarded with the station, let's see, 1983, it's still KSAC. It was still KSAC, and, and uh, it was... It was, I should mention this, it was rather a a bittersweet thing because I was able to be brought on to KSAC only because Paul DeWeese had inadvertently and unexpectedly passed away in that March of that year, and then I was hired in July of that year. But yes, it was still KSAC until next year. Why the change? Why the change? Uh, In 1984... K-State was approached by a station owner in Sacramento, California, who had coveted the call letters KSAC, SAC Sacramento. And so uh, a deal was struck, and uh, of course that station in California and Sacramento paid money to make this happen, and uh, KSAC was relinquished by K-State. And then uh, in the midst of this, they were scrambling to get call letters that would reflect or emulate what K-State was about. And there was a set of call letters still available, KKSU, that I believe was assigned to a maritime ship or something to that effect. And so they had to go through the political hoops to get that released for K-State to use. But in the interim... uh, they couldn't get it done quickly enough. So for one day, KSAC was known as KEXT for extension because they wow. weren't sure that okay. the other call letters were going to actually come through. Well, they did come through in time to switch after that one day from from KEXT to uh, KKSU. I like KKSU better. Yeah, uh, much better, <laughs> as a matter of fact. We should mention, so you are a graduate of K-State with a bachelor master's degree in journalism? Uh, bachelor's degree in radio, television, broadcasting out of the School of Journalism, and then a, a master's degree in journalism and mass communications. And you had you had big shoes to fill when you jumped on board, and, and, and what, what was your... What was your viewpoint at that time? You were just going to um, continue as is or, or or make some changes or you were young? You, you was 26. 26. And once I got past the innate panic and fear of following <laughs> literally a legend in agriculture broadcasting, I mean, again, Paul DeWeese was just remarkable and I, it can't be said strongly enough. 
But my intent was to basically carry the torch as best as one could. I had no ideas of coming in and changing the format or the approach one iota because it was obviously working very, very well. So I just hoped to pick it up. And things were in place where it wasn't starting from scratch. People were accustomed, as people here on campus, our researchers and specialists and so forth, were very much attuned to coming over to McCain Auditorium and doing interviews. So it wasn't like having to recreate the wheel. So eased into that and wanted to continue that that method of going about things and and hopefully did Uh, and so off we went and it was a a whirlwind every week (laughs) to do a half an hour and then it eventually expanded to uh, an hour-long broadcast later on but uh, uh, the idea was uh, again to just put out there our people and let them share what they're finding out in advancing agriculture and agricultural themes and topics and um and share that. I mean, that's part of the extension, taking the university to the people uh, motto. So I wanted to stay very much with that. There was no lack of material, it, but getting all that together for one hour show every day uh, for five days a week, I'm, I'm sure that was a little bit hectic. And might mention too, that wasn't the only thing we did as a staff. Um, we had had something, still have something called the K-State Radio Network, which is a a service of information to local radio stations. And back in that day, via reel-to-reel tapes, we would send out condensed materials from our KSAC, KKSU broadcasts out to stations, and they could plug them into their formats at any uh, opportunity they wanted to use those. So that was the other thing we were doing during the week, is sending tons and tons of tapes and and uh, then, it, of course, it evolved to where it's delivered electronically as it is today, but that same service still exists. It's a, it's amazing how uh, technology has changed during the course of, of the radio um, era, too. And uh, when I was an intern back in, in 1995, um, that time it was hand off the signal when, when Agriculture Today was finished to WIBW out of Topeka. So you would end the broadcast, push a button, and the signal would transfer over. Yeah, yeah. later on in the day. Later on in the day, of course. So uh, how was that agreement reached? I mean, was that you said the timesharing thing wasn't necessarily unique, but how how was that agreement reached? wasn't there, so I can't speak firsthand. (laughs) (laughs) It became a matter of, and I think you expressed it earlier, Aaron, it would be very difficult for a university to con- attribute resources to being on 16 hours a day or certainly 24 hours a day with material. So I'm assuming this now because this is way before my time. I'm assuming that the mindset at the time was this is the most efficient use of our our staff in this endeavor. We want to do this. We want to have a broadcast out there regularly, but we can't maintain the frequency or the broadcast for an extended period. So I am gathering that the reason behind that was to uh, to make use of the technology without having to overly invest in it. Um, and, and again, there were several of these around at the time. So that's my guess. <laughs> we should remind people the, the live broadcast part of KKSU was public radio. There were no commercials. So, I mean, you had to fill in content for the entire amount of time, and then so you were switching from public radio over to over to commercial broadcast. Too. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, 
you mentioned public radio. I do want to mention this quickly uh, for what it's worth. Uh, Our folks in the 60s, Jack Burke and Ralph Titus specifically, were very much integral in starting public broadcasting. Uh, Ralph and Ralph was on the committee that, uh, yes, Ralph was on the committee that started NPR, basically. Wow. There were five five folks. Jack was also involved in that. Ralph was uh, involved in the creation of uh, the longtime NPR program, All Things Considered. He was one of the founding fathers of that. And Jack was the uh, chairman of the board of the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. So he was very much a leader nationally in this whole thing. And in fact, when they created the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Originally, that was to be only television for public television, uh, but Jack was the lead lobbyist to convince uh, the administration of President Johnson at the time to include radio in that, which, as funding of public radio goes, was a, an absolute must. So, anyway, all that to say, these these two were extremely, extremely key to uh, making public radio. Come a lot out. of a lot of pioneering tied to the to, tied to the history of KKSU radio. So, aside from agriculture, there was also athletics, obviously involved with this. You you were able to know some great people dev nelson being one of those and uh tell me about that your your relationship with dev and and what your role was with athletics and hopefully folks do know the name dev nelson yet uh it's been a while but dev was the voice of kansas state university wildcat athletics for several decades Uh, he began in the the uh, early 50s with the KSAC, and I won't go through his whole path of, of his career, but uh, it was a remarkable experience. I was fortunate enough to work side-by-side, when I say side-by-side, office side-by-side with him uh, for five years before he retired in 1988, and what a grand gentleman he was, what an absolute hoot he, he was to be around. He, he was just a gem of a person, and, and you talk about a, a skilled broadcaster. Wow. Uh, he could have gone to other richer pastures in the sports casting world. Uh, if I remember right, the Cardinals were p- potentially a destination for him until they ended up hiring Jack Buck. Ah, yeah. Um, so he was just a, a gem of a guy. The press level at the Bill Snyder Family Stadium is named after him, of course. Uh, it was just a treat to be around a legend such as him. I was sort of starstruck, and then I realized he's just a regular guy from Marquette, Kansas, <laughs> and we had a lot of fun. In fact, uh, after he retired, we did a short piece every week called Dev's Dugout. No, oh. um, he had actually a, a card show, a card store, a card shop, I should say, uh, in Manhattan, and we I'd troop down there every week and do a recording, just talking at random about sports things k-state and otherwise uh, which we aired on kksu so it was that was a lot of fun too but uh, grand guy worked with legends like dev like ralph like jack athletic broadcasting was the purview of the university at that time there was no learfield sports network or anything like that no no at the time uh, again Extension and KSAC ran the sports network up until 1980, and then the rights were sold to WIBW, which became the flagship station for Wildcat Athletics. Uh, so that's when the transition went away from 
extension overseeing the network to uh, other entities, and of course, it's gone through a hand or two since. You've told me stories of climbing up the ladder to the press box there in Ahern Fieldhouse. I mean, what <laughs> what was what were you doing there with with broadcast? That, what was your job? That was well, that was actually not tied to my broadcasting. That was before I came back uh, for good in 1983. It was when I was doing my master's in 1981, uh, and I was working for the sports information department as an intern, a graduate intern. So uh, uh, one of the many duties was, of course, to help with stats keeping and all that sort of thing at the football games, basketball games. And we didn't have a lot of up-to-date technology at that time. We had clunky old typewriters that we had to carry up the stairs to the crow's nest there in Ahern Fieldhouse, which was a real treat. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> they had, every game they had to go up, then they had to come down because they were the office typewriters. So uh, th- there were many, many troops up the, and down the stairs. But, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It really didn't have much to do with my radio career at all, but it was, it was and saw some great games up there. And in fact, uh, got to meet among other people, Bobby Knight, the late Bobby Knight, rest his soul. Uh, actually, K-State in Indiana had played a basketball game in 1981. Great game. Rolando Blackman was uh, Rolando Blackman was our star. And uh, it ended up being a, a tight game. But the game that Indiana won, my assignment was to go get quotes from the opposing coach after the games, the basketball games, which I did. And I went down to the locker there below in, in Ahern as did other reporters, because everybody wanted to talk to Bobby Knight, of course. And we went in the locker, and there's no Bobby Knight to be found. No coach. Where is he? We don't. Nobody knows. So everybody's scrambling around. And I went back out to the court, and there's Coach Knight standing at midcourt, just kind of looking around. And it was myself and another writer, I believe, from the Wichita Eagle, and we were standing there. And he said, hey, fellas, want to come over and get a couple of quotes? <laughs> a nanosecond to get over there and for about five seven minutes the two of us talked with him it was just a, a great great experience and i did ask him what did you think of the the atmosphere here the crowd and that's where he said a quote that was many times over afterward reshared this is the greatest basketball crowd in america and i wrote that down of course and i took it back to glenn stone the sports information director head and i said look at this and he said he really said that and i said he really did and so that was used for uh, quite a while and that was that was a lot of fun great story yeah, yeah. great moment to be there so well back to the radio i things things always do change good things come to an end and um uh in the 2000s i believe 2002 um KKSU as a broadcast entity ceased to exist. What was the story behind that? Well, a long one, to say the least, but it got back to the timeshare agreement. And the administration here at Kansas State University at the time was looking for the best deal they could make in terms of the payments they would get for the rights to broadcasting K-State athletics. Uh, of course, the network was then owned by WIBW, Stoffer Communications, and uh, then Morris Communications thereafter. And the timeshare agreement read in such a way that 
WIBW was thinking or claiming that they had an inherent right to carry the sports casts, the uh, the athletic events, uh, and then we can get we won't get into the weeds of the legalities, what what the timeshare actually said, and so on and so forth. But anyway, K State wanted to get out of that deal and move on to another provider. So the deal was struck after court actions and so forth. The deal was struck to sell K-State's part of the 580 frequency, KKSU, to WIBW for an amount of money, which is what occurred. And so that happened, I believe, in uh, the uh, summer of yeah, August 29th. That's when the agreement was made, August 29th of 2002. Uh, the broadcast rights were sold to, for $1.5 million, and then on November 27th of 2002, that was the last day of broadcasting for KKSU. The end of a, of a great thing. It wasn't the end for K-State radio, though. No. The Agriculture Network continued from that point. What had happened, uh, to, just to round out that story on the Agriculture Today side, we went off the air November the 27th, but Basically, the minute, almost to literally, but basically the minute that uh, it was understood that KKSU was going to be no more, I got a call from a gentleman by the name of Kyle Bauer, who is the general manager of KFRM Radio, uh, stationed in Clay Center, the towers at Salina. I'm sorry, the towers at Concordia. It's licensed to Salina. It's It's all confusing. Anyway. Kyle called and said uh, he understood what had happened, he'd heard, and would I be interested in having Ag Today carried on 550 KFRM? And I said, yep, yep. <laughs> To understand, KFRM's reach is enormous because they're at 5,000 watts and they're at 550 a.m. They get virtually the three fourths of the uh, state of Kansas and northern Oklahoma and parts of Nebraska, Colorado. It's a huge reach. So uh, when they uh, offered that, uh, I said, let's make it happen. And uh, with the blessing of of our leadership, of course, we uh, started broadcasting Agriculture Today uh, in January, right after the Christmas holidays of uh, 2003. So there was a month gap there uh, where Ag Today was not on the air. Uh, but we were back in the saddle and going at 10 o'clock every weekday morning on KFRM, and, and that continues to this day. Kyle, credit to him, recognizes the value of that, right. of, of continuing yes. that show. Very grateful for him reaching out in that way. I imagine a few people woke up on November 28th hoping to hear KKSU radio, and we're probably were in a little bit of shock. Yeah. I mean, did you, hear, did you hear from folks? I... Well, you'd hear from people just randomly. I believe the administration heard heard from people <laughs> from, from people more than we yeah, did. Yeah, um, the quote that was shared with me through a mutual friend uh, from President Weefold was, "I didn't realize how many farmers were listening." Ah, so you know, take that for what it's worth. But but agriculture today continues on in, in even a more modern form, right? The network still exists where it, it's uh, broadcast through more than one radio station and um, podcasts, things like that. What? How does it exist today? It exists today in all those ways. We're, we're still providing, uh, and now electronically through email, basically, uh, 
the program to uh, affiliates. We have a, a couple of them, but um, we're providing that. Uh, we're also providing the network service once a week. Materials in condensed form and, and the produced form are sent out to stations for them to use again, as mentioned before, at their leisure within their formats. So uh, that's that's how it exists today. It's digital. Of course, it's been dig- digital for two, three decades now, maybe more than two, maybe more two than three. But um, it's those are the same vehicles the same mechanisms that we're using now um, the podcast you mentioned though that's the latest development and boy have those taken off it's an like this one <laughs> it's an amazing uh, way to get the folks at the their leisure on their schedule and uh, the same product that we put out or that they put out now since i'm retired is is put in podcast form and made available as a podcast, uh, the Agriculture Today podcast. So it's a ver- the very same material. It's just another way of distributing it, and uh, highly effective. I mean, all of these all of these means are highly effective, and I think that both the over the air broadcasts and the podcasts will continue to flourish. I I don't see podcasts running over the air broadcasts out of town, so to speak. We'll see. It'll be interesting, but uh, it's just another form of radio, frankly. Yeah, 40 years ago to now. I mean, how, how have you seen extension communication evolve for good or bad, including radio and beyond? How, how you know, you've seen countless experts that have, have been on opposite the microphone from you and, and the change in personalities, the technology, the way we deliver it. Probably the technology is the most changed because... Uh, we used to have the reel-to-reels, which you remember so fondly. I do, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we would edit with reel-to-reels, literally dubbing from one to the other, very cumbersome. You got used to how to do it after a while. But but then came along digital editing and what have you, which made things so much easier and uh, allowed one to, to uh, put together even a better product and deliver it much more rapidly. The technology is probably the biggest change. Uh, I don't know that the concept of the outreach has changed that much. It's still come in, record something, or broadcast it live for that matter, and distribute it out in whatever manner. The distribution has changed. I'm not sure that the, the approach has changed all that much, and that's good because verbal communication is still a great way to communicate. I, this is the old man talking here, but I think far better than a text, far better than uh, emails. Uh, it, there's still no substitution for verbal communication, I don't think. All of these can be augmented and, and uh, used together, but, but I, I, I think that's, that's still going to exist as a means of reaching out. I have a bias, but I, I still don't think there's a replacement for radio. I mean, we, we saw some pushback here where some motor companies tried to get rid of AM radio in their in their vehicles, and and uh, it's just a place for it. Yeah, the NAFB, National Association of Farm Broadcasting, was lobbying extensively, heavily, and still are against that happening. And so people like the constant of it. Uh, right. Farmers like the constant of it. And not just older farmers. Younger farmers are tuned in, too. Be it podcast, be it uh, 
a live broadcast or an over-the-air broadcast. Uh, some will listen to that, and and they may miss it one day. They can go back to the podcast and listen to what they, they missed earlier. So there's oodles of convenience. It's just a multitude of ways to, to do this now, and it's actually gratifying that when television came along, they all declared radio dead. It, that's it. No more. Radio is a, a thing of the past. Uh, that didn't ha- did not happen. <laughs> it just didn't. So I think that's where we're at with podcasts and radio, too. Let's talk briefly about the evolution of farm broadcasting. I mean, you used to have an agriculture component to every small radio station exactly. across the Kansas and the central United States. Now you've, you've got a big few players out there. What, what do you think is good or, or bad about how farm broadcasting has evolved? It's good in the sense that there is more opportunity to get more information out because we've seen the evolution since probably the late 1970s of ag networks within the state of Kansas. Let's keep it at that for the moment. Uh, Kansas Agriculture Network, the Mid-America Ag Network, uh, there's the Farm and Ranch Radio Network now. There are several of these. What happened there was that stations no longer were going to, for whatever reason, support a full-time farm director. And I went back through my memory of some of these people that were so great at local stations, and and they became semi-legends, if not full-blown legends, uh, at their local stations. Uh, Names like Sonny Slater, KSAL in Salina, and and Hugh Robinson, uh, KKOW down at uh, Pittsburgh, Chuck Stark at KGNO, and in Dodge City, and uh, Hap Larson, and then Lori Williams, KBUF in Garden City. You could go on and on and on and on. Rex Childs was at KFDI in Wichita, and Rich Hawkins was at KXX in Colby, and so on and so on and so on. Well, those numbers dwindled steadily down uh, to where there are only a few stations, a very small handful of stations by number, uh, that have full-time farm folks. Uh, these networks that evolved sort of supplanted those in the the sense that it allowed local stations to continue with content on agriculture, but they didn't have to pay a salary for somebody, salary and benefits, for instance, and and it's an economical move. Uh, So there's still information that's out there. It's not maybe as localized, which is is kind of a shame to see that happen. Uh, Maybe that'll change someday. Who knows? Um, But it's... It's interesting if you think about just general industries. It doesn't matter what you're you're looking at. Um, What industries do you know that have a broadcast sector devoted expressly to them, other than agriculture? I can't think of one. The aircraft industry? No. Uh, Tourism industry? No. Not to mind knowledge anyway and the podcasts may be lending more in those directions but for decades and decades and decades agriculture has been one of the few industries that has had these broadcast entities uh, devoted expressly to them that says something I, I, I don't know how to explain that but it's, it's true, and I think that'll continue because, uh, as you know, Aaron, as the folks listening are well aware, farmers and ranchers have an insatiable appetite for information. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Which is clearly a good thing. Uh, and they will 
gather as much as they possibly can through whatever means they possibly can. Radio remains very convenient, or audio, if you'd rather say it that way to include podcasts. Very convenient way and very efficient way of doing that. And so uh, the the methods have changed some, but the purpose and the means of getting there haven't changed all that much, I don't think. You tell me. <laughs> nope, I agree with you. Agriculture's not going anywhere, and I, I can echo, yeah, there that, that need for information and farmers adopting the new technology, and, and they're learners is what they are. Constant appetite. Co- constant appetite for that, so... Well, Eric, you've retired, other than herding ponies out at your ranch uh, <laughs> here south of town. Yes. You do you do have some other things going on. A lot of people might know you, you have a broadcast job in the football press box at K-State. Sort of. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, it's, it's a, a volunteer job. Back in 1988, which would be Stan Parrish's final season as head coach at Kansas State, the sports information director here at K-State, a gentleman by the name of Kenny Mossman, who went on to the University of Oklahoma, but from my hometown of Winfield, I'd known Kenny previous, uh, had a vacancy in the press box for the press box announcer. Uh, it was uh, a situation where K-State football wasn't very <laughs> good. <laughs> they've, they've gotten better. Hard to watch yeah. back then. And so they were scrambling around to get somebody to do the press box announcing. And I'll talk about what that is in briefly. I said, sure, I'd love to do that. Uh, and what it amounts to is uh, I relay via the headphones uh, to the press in the press box what's going on in the game according to the official statistician and the scores in front of me. They will say, down in distance, uh, Joe Smith carries the ball, three yards, tackle by John Jones, a gain of three, second down seven from the 43. So the official stats are relayed verbally to the media in the press box. Well, then Bill Snyder came along in 1989, and, and that job became more favorable. <laughs> and I wasn't about to let it go. Yeah, absolutely. So that was, what is it, 35 years ago. Wow. And so for 35 years, I've been the, the press box PA. for. Uh, but it's also a challenge for you because there's no yelling or screaming. No or yelling or screaming. Or my my <laughs> wife has chuckled at that because she sees me watching games on TV at home, and I'm all over the well, place. Well, I've seen you watch You've game, seen me watch, watch games. games. Yeah. It's not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't understand how i could suppress all that <laughs> during the game but uh, it's it's an interesting job it's a fun job you've also started another project to to keep your your radio communication skills going and and doing something i think is is great to preserve a little history of farm families well thanks for the opportunity to give the shameless plug here. well you should <laughs> what uh and actually you were instrumental in this you brought this to my attention but uh the idea was that oftentimes farm families are regretful when their elders pass and they have not captured in some way the memoirs of their parents, uh, farming parents, uh, to share with future generations. So now that I've retired, have been for about a year and a half now, uh, it occurred that maybe I could invest in some relatively decent audio equipment, portable equipment, go out to these farm families who would be interested in this and record their parents or aunts or uncles or whomever they'd like to record their memoirs of their farming life, their farm family lives, 
their their rural community involvement, whatever they would want to share, to uh, preserve those memories again for future generations to listen to great grandma talk about the farm or great grandpa talk about how the farm had been passed along to him from previous generations and then go out record those on the farmer ranch with the the uh, parties bring it back and, and put it together in a package of audio that uh, is provided to those families and as many copies as as they want it's not a for-profit thing per se, um, but it's something that I'm availing myself to anybody that would like to have that happen. Uh, so that's what it's about, and it's it's been really interesting so far to interview folks and get their various stories. I imagine it's fun, and speaking from the perspective of a person myself who waited too long, uh, don't don't wait too long to do that. How how can someone reach out to you if they if they're interested? The in that? easiest way to do that is to email me and here's the address a g g u y at k s u dot e d u a g g u y at k s u dot e d u or you can call me at 785-587-7355 and I will get back to you, and we'll see what you have in mind, and, and uh, we can make it happen. Take advantage of that opportunity, folks. He's, he's not charging an arm and a leg either for that, so uh, it's, it's a great thing. Well, Eric, this has been fun. Uh, I, I know you wouldn't put yourself on the platform with people like Paul DeWeese and Ralph Titus and Dev Nelson, but you, you are a radio legend in Kansas. People, people recognize you from one end of the state to the other. And glad to have this discussion to to get some of this on the record, and we look forward to celebrating that 100 years of of radio at K-State in 2024. Stay tuned for details. There is a committee that's been pulled together to honor, quote, the radio towers, which would reflect the 100 years of radio excellence out of Kansas State University. That's likely going to happen starting in September of this coming fall, and details will be forthcoming. So I hope folks will take due note of that as those uh, bits of information come out. And uh, and kudos to you while passing out kudos uh, for this podcast, because this is a great vehicle to share some terrific information and stories about wheat and agriculture and all that's associated with it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Appreciate it, Aaron. My thanks to Eric Atkinson for joining us on this episode of the Weeds on Your Mind podcast. Remember, if you have questions or comments about this podcast, email us at podcasts at ksweet.com. I'm Aaron Harries. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.